You're listening to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by Godfather of Sass, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, at HStebbings on Snapchat. Now, for today's show, we were thinking it's been a while since we interviewed some really world class Sass investors on the show. So today, I'm delighted to welcome Blake Bartlett, partner at OpenView Ventures, where he helps identify value and lead investments in product led businesses, driving market dislocation. And prior to joining, OpenView, he was a vice president at Battery Ventures, where he focused on growth stage software and internet businesses. Blake joined Battery in 2009 and helped lead 10 investments, including the likes of Wayfair, Optimizely, Sprinkler, and Glassdoor. But enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to the main man, Blake Bartlett, partner at OpenView Ventures. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Blake, thank you so much for joining me on the official Sasta podcast today. I'm so glad to have you here. Harry, I'm a huge fan of both of your shows, so glad to be here. Now, I want to start off by hearing about how you made your way into the world of SaaS investing and kind of the origin story behind you. Yeah, definitely. So um, I started in venture 10 years ago, and initially I invested in anything and everything. My first investment was a hardware investment. Uh, network monitoring business, so uh, literally a box with blinking lights that's plugged in into the data center. Um, and then I had a stint in consumer where uh, I invested in and helped lead investments in companies like Wayfair, uh, Glassdoor, and others. Um, and it was actually through spending a lot of time with the growth team at Wayfair um, that I first started to hear about uh, the tools and the technologies um, that they loved and that they relied on um, in order to make their lives easier. And so I found out about companies and stumbled across companies uh, like Optimizely, uh, Sprinkler, Catchpoint, um, other great SaaS businesses like this, um, invested in some of those companies, um, and ultimately fell in love with SaaS, decided to make it my sole focus, go really deep into that area, and uh, the rest is history. And I'm really intrigued, having had that kind of multi-sector approach to, to the investing industry, what was it about SaaS in particular that made you fall in love with it over things like hardware and consumer, like you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think um, consumer is certainly sexy, and it can be fun to invest in, but um, ultimately, consumers are very fickle. <laughs> it's really hard to, to predict uh, what's going, especially at the earliest stages, what's going to work uh, and what's not going to work. There's a lot of serendipity, a lot of luck involved, uh, at least from my perspective. There's there's some folks that are really good at it. And then even at the later stages, you know, um, I mentioned investing in Wayfair. Um, at the time, there was also a company, you know, fab.com that was super, super, um, you know, successful, growing really fast, uh, certainly a darling of, of the media and, and the tech publications of, of the time. Yet it was Wayfair that uh, ultimately ended up being successful, though um, you know at the time the the Fab brand was was you know certainly off the charts. So predicting that is is just really hard, and, and a lot of uh, sort of like I said, consumers are fickle. So you know to be able to deal with businesses where you know by and large folks are rational actors, right? They have real problems, they're looking for real solutions, they're willing to pay money. Uh, you know, to solve those problems. And as long as you continue to solve those problems, uh, they'll continue to gladly pay you money. And, um, you know, I, I was attracted to those elements. I'm really intrigued with the increasing consumerization of SaaS, like we, we're constantly told by SaaS investors. Do you think we'll start to see the intrusion of that same consumer fickleness into the SaaS industry and kind of enterprise contracts? I do. I think that um, uh, it won't be as bad, right? Because, you know, it, it tends not to be driven by fads, but I do think that it can, that it can have an effect um, and I think that in particular has an effect 
um, when you're talking about markets that are just hyper competitive and crowded. Five to ten venture backed companies in a particular space, um, you know, and ultimately, if there maybe isn't a lot of differentiation between those players, um, and the switching costs are relatively low, or if it's a lightweight application. Um, then you can start to see what appears to be fairly fickle behavior, you know, from one player to the next. Um, so I, I do think that we'll see a, a rise in, in things like that in certain software uh, spaces and sectors. And you've already mentioned some companies. And so I want to today d- deep dive on all things product led. I think you're, it's fair to say, a master of the product led kind of nature. So let's, so let's start with this uh, and with your thesis and why you only invest in product led companies. And what you really mean by product-led to start with? Yeah, so I think that being product-led, ultimately, it starts at the beginning question of why did you start this business for a founder or founding team? Folks can have answers like, I wanted to do a startup, (laughs) right? Or my co-founders and I sold our last business um, and we wanted to do another startup. And and starting with that of, hey, I wanted to do a startup, um, that's kind of an an MBA-esque way Uh, to think about starting a company. That is in contrast to sort of a founder that might say, I had to solve this problem. Um, I wasn't intending to start a startup or do a startup, so to speak. I I just had to solve this problem. And sometimes you even see the reluctant founder where, you know, they didn't want to start a company. It wasn't their goal to start a startup or to do a startup. They just, um, you know, saw that there was this problem. I have to solve this problem. They look out there and, you know, try to find another solution or another way to solve this problem, realize that that product doesn't exist. And they basically sort of reluctantly say, OK, fine, if nobody else has done it, then then I'm going to do it. Um, and that ultimately becomes the DNA of the founder means that it becomes the DNA of the company. And it's thinking about, you know, the products and it's thinking about customers um, that becomes the default resting state of the business. And that's really, if it's not in the DNA, it's just really, really hard to replicate. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of kind of the imperative nature of this, why do you think it's so imperative to be so product led at the core of a company and it's crucial to your investing? I think fundamentally you cannot add the product orientation later. Um, again, it's it's a DNA level thing, um, and, and it's like order of operations almost in a way. So if you start with saying, "All right, we're we're going to start this company," and first things first, I want to you know nail down the sales model, um, or first things first, I want to you know build a financial model that's uh, that's great, or first things first, I want to get to you know a million dollars of ARR, and then once I you know get there, or once I raise my Series A. You know, then I'll start to to really fine tune the product and, and make something that people love. It really has to be sort of um, at a first principles level where you begin. You can't sprinkle it in later; it just does not work. So, um, yeah, I think it's really at that DNA level. I always find it hard when we talk about product-led companies when you think back to, I think it's Reid Hoffman's statement that you should be embarrassed by your first product shipment. If not, it's too late. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, because I think, look, so I think that that speaks to um, to speed. So, um, and, and in some ways, these are slightly different things. I think you can be product-led and product-oriented and still have that default resting state of the company and of the founding team be thinking about product uh, and thinking about customers, yet you still move fast, right? That is not synonymous with being a perfectionist, right? Because if you're a perfectionist and you're, you're solely and you're focused on trying to solve the problem perfectly, then you're just never going to ship product. So I think that those are two independent things that are both important to kind of hold t- together as uh, intention maybe a little bit is that I want that I am product oriented. 
um, that I want to build the best product that people are going to fall in love with and that really solves their problem. And that ultimately becomes highly sticky, but I also value moving really, really quickly. And I think that that's going to enable sort of very fast iteration, which will ultimately enable sort of continuous rapid improvement on your product uh, and, and accomplish that end mission of being product-oriented in the first place. And now we've established the kind of core thesis that we have to be a product-led company. I guess the next logical step is to discuss product market fit and, and customer value, uh, and probably even more precisely, the continuum of customer value. So I, I want to know, is this continuum very binary, or are there varying degrees of customer value? So I, I do not think that it's a binary thing. Um, and, and sometimes people talk about product market fit as you know, either you have it or you don't. And it's kind of this single, you know, one flavor monolithic thing. But in reality, um, you know, if again, if you bring it back to what problem are you trying to solve, you can have product market fit for something that's a lightweight product or maybe uh, more tactical in nature. But just because somebody loves that product doesn't mean that that product is a company or that it's going to be a generational software company or a multi-billion dollar entity, right? And I think that this ultimately becomes, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you look at Product Hunt, and if you look at the top hunts, uh, top products on Product Hunt in a given day, there's a lot of great stuff on there, but a lot of them are side projects, right? Or a lot of them are, are built by indie developers. And, and people might, and you look at the comments, and you look at the upvotes, and people love those products, but that doesn't mean that every single company that has a ton of votes or every single product that has a ton of votes on, on Product Hunt, as an example, is now going to be a billion-dollar company. So you can achieve product market fit for something that's lightweight, tactical, or solves you know, maybe a small problem or a minor workflow inconvenience that people have. And, and they'll love the product and sing praises about it. Um, and you can get product market fit at that level. But there also is, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, basically strategic value. Uh, which is in contrast to tactical value. And you know, getting and achieving product market fit uh, for true strategic lasting value is a much harder thing to do than that lightweight tactical value. So I think in talking about this, this idea of product market fit, it's important to, to not make it so binary, um, but to really understand that there is a continuum here. How do you think founders can determine whether their product is a lightweight kind of potential feature for a larger company or uh, a real company in itself? What do you think the determinants are and how can they test them? Is it kind of how much customers are willing to pay, retention metrics? What is it that determines this? Yeah, I do think uh, willingness to pay is, is a big thing, right? Uh, first and foremost, if it's free to begin with, and then you flip the switch and uh, sort of ask people to pay even a nominal amount uh, and nobody's willing to do it, then that's probably an indication that you're highly, highly tactical and, and people might love it. But if the willingness to pay is zero, um, then that's probably a good answer to your question initially. And then as you scale up from there, right, willingness to pay more and more and more um, is a reflection, especially in, you know, sort of uh, when you're selling to businesses and we're talking about B2B here. Again, in contrast to consumer, like we talked about before, um, you know, it's a direct correlation. What people pay um, is a direct correlation and reflection of how much value they get out of it. And, and yeah, so I think that that, that pricing continuum is, is a good way to measure it. And we spoke about the customer value there. And I interviewed Shadul Shah, a partner at Index, recently, actually. Um, and he stated that time to customer value was a key metric for him in assessing startups. So how pivotal, pivotal a role does the actual time to customer value play in your investment process? So I think that time to value um, is, is super important. And, and I've written some things about this 
Um, and I think that in particular, if you're focused on uh, a product-led growth strategy where your product really is the core of your growth strategy, the product is you know, your marketing, uh, pro- product as marketing effectively, then time to value is, is imperative. Uh, and, and in particular, if, you, if you're leveraging a freemium strategy, strategy for example, um, or if everybody sort of in your funnel, in your buyer's journey, goes through a free trial to begin with, you know, then time to value is, is, is imperative. It's not, again, a one-size-fits-all thing. I think you have to think about who is your customer, what is the segment of the market, what is your average deal size, um, and things like that. And it's going to be different depending on the company. Um, so, for example, if you end up being, you know, if, if we're talking about an infrastructure company um, that's selling largely to enterprise, um, mostly targeting the CIO, and the average deal size is going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not maybe a seven-figure deal size, then time to value is, is measured very, very differently. And having a lightweight, downloadable, freemium app is not really the right approach for that, for that uh, particular company or for that particular product. So I do think that time to value is important, but um, not viewing it on a sort of single you know, continuum um, or, or sort of in a single um, way is, uh, is important as well. And then you, you mentioned deal size there and, and staying on the kind of core focus of product and then integrating that with deal size. I'm intrigued to hear what product led means for sales. And, and does this mean kind of traditional sales is bad? Yeah. Look, I, I think that in relation to sales, sales is a topic where people can be very um, dogmatic, right? You On the one hand, you can have uh, and it really can be a, a religious debate. So you have the hardcore field sales camp where everything is all about, you know, bag carrying enterprise reps out in the field. And we're talking about sales productivity metrics and things like that. Uh, time to ramp, you know, average quota attainment rates, and you're building out a sales productivity model. Um, then you can have sort of uh, the the inside sales only, you know, camp where where everything is, you know, field sales, bag carrying reps are dead. Everything's all about sort of inbound marketing and inside sales, and that's the only way to sell. And then, you know, increasingly, you can have sort of an anti-sales, sales is evil uh, camp as well, where we're never going to have sales because sales is sleazy, right? And, and we're going to have such a great product that the product is going to sell itself. Regardless of what camp um, somebody might find themselves in, it's important to be aware of, you know, is, are we really kind of taking this dogmatic sort of tribal approach and view of sales? Um, in reality, um, you know, it's, it's not sort of so, um, cut and dry. It's not so black and white. And I think for a product led organization, um, and if you're really trying to embody product led growth, that sales, um, is really ultimately an extension of support and success. So if you view customer support as, you know, being reactive in helping customers that are already your customers, and then if you view success as being proactive uh, in helping people that are already your customers, then sales is really just being proactive for folks that aren't yet your customers, basically your prospects, right? And so if you view it in that way, um, you start to see that, okay, I can do sales in my own way. I can do sales as a, an extension of support um, and customer centricity um, and, and customer success. Um, and so I think that that starts to get a little bit away from this dogmatic view of, you know, either sales is the only answer 
or sales is evil and start to realize that, you know, you can do sales in your own way. I mean, I'm intrigued there. You said about customer success. So I'm intrigued to hear how, how central a role do you see customer success playing in today's SaaS environment uh, and, and how much of a role it will play in the future? So I, I think that success is is huge. And I think it's interesting because, you know, in many ways, customer success is being talked about as, as this new concept. I see it as kind of a, a melding of things that previously existed before. And it's going to look different for each company. But, um, you know, previously you had professional services um, or implementation or things like that that helped you get set up, get the product or the instance sort of oriented the right way. Uh, once you were up up and running, you had um, account management that would check in, make sure everything's going according to plan, you know, check in before the renewal or, or the maintenance, uh, you know, contract is up for renewal and things like that. And then you also had customer support who, if you did have a problem, you could file a support ticket. You could, you know, talk about a bug to them. All of these things together, if you pull them under one umbrella, that is customer success, right? At the front end, we're helping customers to be successful by getting them up and running and in the product implemented and instrumented in the right way. Um, and then we're proactively doing account management, checking in with them, monitoring usage metrics, seeing if we're still solving the problem, and trying also from a support perspective to get in front of support issues uh, by proactively reaching out and holding the hand of the customer. And so really customer success, while bringing all those things together, is a new mantra and is a new way to view it. And is bringing that sort of um, proactivity and, and proactiveness and customer centricity to to the forefront. It really is just kind of the evolution of of things that have existed in software organizations for a long time. But I I do think that um, you know bringing it together um, in this way is is bringing and breathing new life into it. And ultimately, it's better for the customer. And I want to dive into the 60-second SASTA now. So I say a statement, and you give me immediate thoughts. 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Perfect. So productivity hacks and tactics, what are your, your must-haves? Productivity is, first and foremost, you got to know yourself and know what you're good at and what you're bad at and uh, where your strengths are, and then optimize for it. So for personally, um, I, I love consuming new content, um, but I'm actually really poor at reading um, and uh, really slow at reading. So I've gravitated towards audio content. And so I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Um, I listen to audiobooks and Audible all the time. And then I'm a new um, sort of big fan of Pocket and their text-to-speech feature, which uh, basically has this robot read articles to you, which is a little bit creepy. Uh, but if you can get beyond that, um, it's actually a fantastic productivity tool for making it through a lot of written content. And then MarTech, bullish or not bullish? Both. I am bullish in the sense that um, I do think that selling to – uh, the marketer and selling to the CMO is a great line of business to sell to. Uh, there's a lot of budget there, and it's only going to continue to grow. So in that sense, at the broad level, um, I am bullish, and I think there's going to be continue to be great companies built like Exact Target and HubSpot and Marketo and plenty of others. But on the other hand, I think if you look at the number of companies going after uh, the marketing budget today and the number of businesses that have been funded, um, there's just way too many companies going after it. And so I think that it creates this situation that's effectively like a knife fight, knife fight right now uh, for venture-backed companies. Um, and so right now, I'm actually kind of sitting on the sidelines uh, in relation to MarTech and, and let the, uh, the dust settle a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest advice to early-stage SaaS founders, what would you recommend? So I think it's uh, focus on the problem, going back to why are you starting a company. Um, it's, it's really about what problem are you trying to solve? 
um, think about the users and the customers that have that problem and then build something that they want. Mm-hmm. And then finally, laser-focused investing, pros and cons of being so targeted. So OpenView is, is laser-focused. We exclusively invest in expansion stage software companies. And the pros of laser focus is that it's actually possible to be the best in the world at one thing. And it's actually impossible to be the best in the world at everything. So focus matters, and focus is the key to, to really uh, to excellence, in, in my view. Um, but the cons are that, look, VCs are wired to be intellectually curious. So um, an intellectual curiosity is, is sort of at, at the core of our DNA. And so it can be super tempting to look at drones or VR or IoT or wearables or whatever the thing is, because they are so damn cool. But, you know, by, by virtue of the fact of being laser focused, um, you know, you really have to learn what to say yes to, but also what to say no to. And then, and then we're going to finish moving away from the quick fire. We're going to finish with, with the product led theme still very much intact. And, and so I want to discuss then, how do you actually pull off product led growth? We, we mentioned it beforehand, but how do you actually pull it off? And what are the fundamentals that are necessary that founders need to consider to pull it off? You've seen it now with, with many companies. You mentioned Optimizely and Expensify. So, so yeah, what, what, what is needed to pull it off? So I think that uh, at its foundation, uh, in order to really successfully do product uh, to achieve and to sort of embody product-led growth, data is the key. Uh, Visibility is the key. You have to know sort of what are people doing in our product? Uh, What what features do people love? What are the behaviors that people um, are actually, uh, that users are actually, um, you know, uh, how are they embodying uh, those behaviors in, in the product? What are they doing and what are they not doing? If we push a new feature, um, you know, do people love it um, or do they, you know, not care? Even further up funnel from, you know, the actual usage metrics, um, as people go through the funnel, as people go through the buyer's journey, what are they doing? Uh, what, what are they doing when they first get into the product? Um, things like that. The only way that you can answer those questions is, yes, you could theoretically talk to, you know, never stop talking to, to, to users, which you need to do, but that ultimately also does not scale infinitely. And so you have to have data. So really pulling off product-led growth, first and foremost, it's all about data. Uh, the more data you have, the more visibility you get. Um, and so there's products, whether it's you know products that you know are client side like Amplitude or Heap or things like that that really kind of bring that visibility. Intercom Expensify is a huge user of Intercom to really see what people are doing in the product um, and then communicating with them in those sort of moments. Uh, where there's uh, conversion potential, where there's uh, risk of churn. Uh, there's another great product for, uh, by ex-Facebook founders um, called Interana, or sorry, not Facebook founders, but Facebook um, employees uh, called Interana. That's fantastic. Um, that uh, allows you to to really see everything that's happening on the front end and the back end, um, and sort of get visibility with data. So I think it ultimately comes down to to data. If you don't have that visibility, you're just guessing. Um, and maybe you get lucky, but um, maybe you don't. <laughs> and so, yeah, data is the key. And, and I'm intrigued. You mentioned obviously they're working with with your optimized leads and expensifiers of the world. So, so what were your biggest then? Finishing on this, what were your biggest takeaways from watching those companies scale into into real hyper growth modes in the SaaS world? So a lot of things. I think um, largely everything that I've been talking about in terms of product first, product led philosophy um, with SaaS companies. A lot of that's been informed by working with companies like 
Optimizely in the past or Expensify today, uh, Pantheon, many others. You know, I think that if we talking about Expensify in particular, you know, being focused on the product, solving a real problem, but then also pricing it the right way, and then seeing how that can serve a plethora of customers. Right, um, Expensify has customers that have one employee and are happy paying customers. They have customers that are twelve thousand employees and happy paying customers. And when you nail those things. Right when you nail the right product and it's priced the right way, you have this beautiful sort of magical dynamic where you actually never your customers never outgrow you. So Expensify works and integrates into you know the accounting systems and you know people you you see with the accounting systems people start with QuickBooks or with Zero. Eventually you graduate to Netsuite. Eventually maybe you graduate to you know an Oracle or an SAP, and you constantly see people outgrowing products. Um, but all all the while, in the background, Expensify is you know sort of there for expense reporting, and people love it, right? And so when you've nailed the product, when you've nailed the pricing, you grow with your customers, and your customers never outgrow you, uh, which is really a beautiful dynamic. I've got to say, Blake, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing your insights on the world of SaaS. I really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch, Harry. It's been a pleasure. Now, before we leave and thank Blake for today, I want to ask you all a question that you can reply to me on Twitter at Harry Stebbings on. And I want to know that if you think the rise of bottoms up sales in SaaS will result in increased fickleness, similar to the likes of consumer fickleness like we talked about with Blake today. And on the theme of Blake, I want to say a huge thank you to Blake for giving up the time today to be on the show. It really was so fantastic to hear his journey and his thesis with OpenView. And if you can't stay away from the world of SASTA, then you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter. Twitter at Jason LK, or you can add me on Snapchat at H Stebbings. As always, we so appreciate your support and we look very forward to bringing you Monday's episode.